Welcome back to the Host Dispatch. I'm your co-host, Claire Bowman, and in today's episode, Anar Verold and I had the immense pleasure of chatting with the poet Julie Howd. Julie is a poet and educator from Massachusetts, and she's the author of Threshold, winner of the Spring 2020 Host Publications Chapbook Prize. Julie's poetry is a delightful force, and the poet has come to consider herself an eco-surrealist, writing poetry that is deeply in tune with the threats facing our natural world, our sanity, and our joy. In this conversation, we discuss some of the poems in Threshold, what kinds of toast we've been making these days, how many blankets are appropriate to use when working from home, where poetry comes from, and a bevy of other hilarities and affairs facing the life of the artist in the year 2020. Be sure to check out the show notes for information on which books, TV shows, and music we discussed, among many other treasures. We hope you enjoy this conversation among friends, and as always, thanks for listening. Welcome to the podcast, Julie. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We're so excited to have you. You're definitely one of our favorite people. And in the year of 2020, we've been reminiscing pretty much constantly since February about uh, your chapbook release party and our subsequent trip to San Antonio for AWP, the fateful last AWP of our lives, perhaps. <laughs> it feels like so long ago now. Oh, yeah. We we are constantly like, do you remember March? Like, <laughs> do you remember AWP? Yeah, it's really special that our last big event um, involved you and getting to celebrate your chapbook threshold. I know. That was such a magical time. And at the time, I was thinking it was magical, but it seems even more magical now that that happened. And the next day I got home, <laughs> everything shut down. And here we've been this whole time. So yeah, I really look back on that time with a lot of fondness. <laughs> um, I always refer to the sharing fork. <laughs> <laughs> Just for context, we bought a bunch of pastries at AWP one night when we were all very tired um, and wanted to spend time with each other and play charades and hang out um, in one of the hotel rooms. And we had one fork and we did not lick the fork. Oh my we God. We just used it to cut all of the snacks. But yeah, I just think of that and such great fond memories of that event yeah you read at the ice cream social awp slash release party and um it's just such a special time (laughs) yeah at um la palateria in the park that was so nice like just seeing the community come out and be together on that little hill and that little stage at night oh it was so nice yeah as we shouted our poems over that band that was playing at that nearby event that made it feel so magical though I don't know it felt kind of punk rock you know (laughs) just having like a poetry reading by the light of the stars 
with popsicles <laughs> and then having to kind of carve out your own space even though you're outdoors because there was competing events someone said that was the most austin reading that they've been to at awp i was like wow we got our stink on it that <laughs> punk feel yeah <laughs> We got our Austin stink all over that San Antonio reading. (laughs) I was just telling Claire. So at the beginning of the pandemic, it all seemed like it would be over in about a month. So we're like, let's gather some, some tips from our contributors, our authors, and put out like a little like love note, a little guide for the next month. And we asked Julie for some work from home tips because Julie, you work from home. I do. And they have been some real, it's it's a real survival guide for 2020. Yeah. I, I feel like, you know, to me, these things all seemed very mundane at the time because I was already working from home. Like, oh, these are all just things that I do as part of my regular schedule. And yeah, it's just pretty wild that like, Now everyone is kind of relying on just like different ways to cope and adapt to this new environment. And it's just like, oh, maybe those weren't so mundane after all. Maybe these were like really crucial. (laughs) It's totally a survival guide. And we've posted about it and reposted about it because unfortunately it continues to be very relevant. (laughs) And I think that there's a lot of work from home tip lists out there that you can find and they are pretty mundane and they are pretty repetitive but yours is extremely colorful and full of unexpected lines of almost poetry I would say (laughs) like in the first tip which is to maintain your usual pre-work activities and sort of letting your routine um, take up space even when it's not completely necessary you say, let your mind swirl in the abyss for an hour. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, um, I think that's a really important one because sometimes I feel like we get so caught up in doing things and feeling the need to accomplish things. And we often feel like self-care is an active activity, but sometimes you really just need to let your mind swirl in the abyss. Mm -hmm. That's just what your body and mind need at that time. And everyone needs to know that that's okay. And that's a vital part of being a living creature. Yeah, it totally (laughs) is. And it's just so it's like something I know intuitively, but to hear it spoken so eloquently, it's really helpful to go back to and to realize that yeah, it If I need to call it meditation or whatever, so that that type A part of my brain is satisfied that I did something this morning before work, fine. But really, it is just sitting and being quiet (laughs) and letting the mind be quiet because it's hard to do a lot of different things in one small space. As an apartment dweller, I can say working from home can be really trippy. There's no boundaries. I had like a a moment yesterday where I realized in my household, we make part of host happen. And then AJ, my husband, works for the History Center. I'm like, we're making the world function from Mm -hmm. this 
tiny little space that we call home. Um, and that just like blew my mind. I was like, wow. But it also just didn't seem fair. We're doing these great, big, beautiful things out of this tiny space. Like I should be living at the top of a mountain. <laughs> yes. I agree. Yeah. Right. Especially now, like when, you know, your whole household, if you live with other people, they're always around you at all times. So everybody's lives are existing within this tiny space simultaneously. Oh my God. Everything, you know, <laughs> every part of those people's lives. So it just gets to like be this kind of buildup of psychic energy um, that really becomes a lot. It's just like our entire memories for this year are going to be in our houses. Mm-hmm. But it is like when you're when you're doing those kinds of activities, like literally making a business run um, and operate from your home, which is supposed to be your space, your circle of protection, your place to unwind and to let your mind swirl in the abyss, whatever that means for you. It's hard to then differentiate. It's hard to make the work part go away when, you know. Like I said, there's no boundary around it. But Julie tells us to set up a designated workspace. So there's some compartmentalizing happening there. But let's be honest, we have all spent the last three months working from bed, right? (laughs) I was just going to say, yeah, Julie says set up a designated work zone. That means don't work in bed on the couch or anywhere else you normally relax and I do it constantly, and I'm always like, Julie said not to do this. <laughs> and then I'm kind of pleased with myself for being disobedient. <laughs> it feels even better than to lay in bed while I do my work. <laughs> yes. So yes to disobedience. And also, <laughs> I look back on this now, and I feel like some of the rules have changed because of the pandemic and because of the, especially recently, the looming election Honestly, like I've been on my couch for the past three months. I haven't really been following my own rules. Here. <laughs> um, but I don't know. There's just something about these past few months that I've just felt so exhausted. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I can't, I can't stand and work at my standing desk. I have to just sit on my couch, cover myself with three blankets and just drink coffee and just cope with what's what's yeah. going on right now. <laughs> Three blankets. Julie, do you need a weighted blanket? Honey, you should say, I actually just got this weighted blanket as a part of Joe's schooling. Um, Joe, my partner, for those who don't know, is in business school right now, and he's working with this company um, to create the first weighted blanket that feels like a real blanket. So, like, I got a free one because of their testing, and it is pretty awesome. (laughs) Oh, man, this seems like the start of a bright future for you, Julie, where you (laughs) get to test products for free. I hope so. (laughs) If they're as much fun as a weighted blanket, then I'm in. (laughs) How is it? How is the weighted blanket that you got? Yeah, I mean, it's great. It's just so nice. Just having like that comfort. And like, I don't have any cats here with me in Amherst. So I kind of miss having like a weight on my lap. (laughs) Yeah. Um, From my mom's cats back home. And so it's like nice having that comforting weight. And like it keeps me really warm too because I'm in New England. 
So, you know, it's so cold here, like most of the year and other blankets, they can just like kind of fly away. But this one, like it really holds you down. It keeps you grounded. It keeps all the warm air in. So yeah, this isn't a sales pitch. I swear. (laughs) I'm sold. We really love elevating our podcast with just tinge of consumerism oh more than a tinge (laughs) a wash well we we want to know you know what to buy especially when it comes to creature comforts oh my Mm. god we are here to pick your brain essentially (laughs) and and then share that with the people because that's what they really want yeah and funny you should say creature comforts because I feel like for all my life I've been a very cerebral person I've lived mainly in my head but since this whole isolation has started, I've been very much living in my body, much more than I probably I ever have, just out of necessity to, you know, kind of survive. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's kind of been nice just being a body. <laughs> your, your poetry is very, very cerebral. So I'm so curious if your poetry after this period is going to be more of the body Mm. Um, yeah it's weird because you have like elements of nature within the brain and how you experience the world um there was that one poem in dunce that i read um about the apple peel that i was like this is a julie howd poem um (laughs) and so i'm excited for this next collection hopefully you're working on something I'm sure you are um, to see how your work from your previous collection marries the experience of the pandemic and being more in your body Mm. so that's exciting yes well first of all I must say I was very flattered for the comparison to Mary Rufel I love her so much that really made my day and yeah I'm I'm kind of in this weird position where I'm working on a manuscript of poems that were probably written from like 2015 to 2018. And I think those probably still are more in that cerebral arena. And I'm also starting this whole new manuscript that is more dredged in the natural world. So there will be more physical elements and more sensuousness in those poems so I guess we'll see once they all come together because it's hard to tell with just a few what what the whole landscape will look like (laughs) that's so exciting I I do feel like the cerebral and the spiritual are both really heightened in your work but that's what makes it so lovely to me um especially when we're like really steeped in language that is abstract, um, magnificent opioid hierograms, for example, (laughs) is a line from Grackles Are Practically Citizens. But the title of that poem, Grackles Are Practically Citizens, is A, hilarious, (laughs) and B, very physically accessible in terms of an image, And I do think that being steeped in that kind of language and thought makes the more physically or physically connected or sensuous lines have such um, an interesting type of impact. All of a sudden you get like sort of wrenched back into your body because three lines down from magnificent opioid hierograms is biting an apple colon sex. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so, you know, obviously that's like still playing with iconography and um, mythology, but it's so physical and the taste of apple, the crunch of apple, the visceral experience of biting an apple and then bam, the word sex. <laughs> Um, it throws you back in the body in in a really disorienting and delightful way. And I love that about your work, that that when you do play in the senses, it feels equally cerebral and it also feels supercharged. Sorry for just doing a close reading out of nowhere. No, that's great. I honestly love hearing close readings of my poems because sometimes, you know, people will be like, you know, what are your poems about? What kind of poems do you write? And then I have to make up something really smart on the spot. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, I think that really resonates with what I'm unconsciously doing when I write poetry, which is kind of merging the physical and spiritual realms, more specifically merging the experience of being an individual within a body and also having a conscious mind Mm -hmm. that interacts with the world around us. And so kind of just trying to simultaneously translate thought and experience as it's happening. Um, And that's why everything gets pulled in, the thoughts and also the tangible world. And we get that kind of effect of non sequitur sometimes. But you know, that's just, that's just what it's like to be a living thing is non sequitur. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Making this podcast and editing it has really (laughs) shown me in a big way that our brains travel via non sequiturs. That's what we do. <laughs> there are some associative leaps. And then sometimes it's just a thought that comes out of nowhere. And it's just the thought we happen to choose to express verbally. Who knows what else is going on up there? So mm-hmm. I agree. I feel like that is a more literal translation of what the world is like and what it's like to be a person in a body. Right. Um, to have a ton of non sequiturs and just a ton of stuff. Like your poems are chock full of stuff (laughs) that feels very real to me yeah well our world is full of stuff so it's hard to keep it all out (laughs) yeah so this is kind of a non sequitur but I can share something with you that I virtually attended the other night yes so it was this composer who sonified the chemical signatures of exoplanets. Okay. And so what that basically means is certain elements absorb certain wavelengths of light. So if you look at it with this special spectroscope, they call it, and it shows you all like the color wavelengths, there will be some black lines throughout the color spectrum. And those are like chemical signatures by certain elements. And they leave these black lines And so he basically translated the wavelengths of light cast by certain exoplanets, which are planets outside of our solar system, and turned it into music. Mm. So first of all, whoa. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to process that just on a first go, but I'm very intrigued by it. Yeah. So I'm still basically processing it, but this kind of got me thinking about basically how poetry does the same or maybe even the opposite of translating sound, whether that be thoughts 
or whatever sounds you might receive from outside of your body into words, which are basically displacements of light on a page or on a screen. And so it's kind of like the opposite effect where you translate sound into light or the, you know, absence of light or the disruption of light. And I've always thought about poetry as an act of translation. And that kind of just made it even more tangible to me, just seeing like that translation of light into sound and just how it can go both ways. So cool. I mean, I'm just mouth agape. Um, (laughs) That is so beautiful. And like, gives me so much hope in a way that I did not even know I could find um, just beauty and hope in the world. Um, What is this composer's name? So the composer is David Ibbett, and it was a presentation or event through the Museum of Science in Boston. And apparently it's part of this series they call the multiverse, which is like basically science meets music, um, which is so cool. It is so beautiful. I do love that you're bringing poetry and sound to the page, and that's how you perceive your experience writing. Of course, like, poetry has has a sound and a rhythm, um, mm. but this is a very different approach to that. I was going to say a similar thing, Anar, which is that I love that, Julie, you're thinking about poetry as sound Mm -hmm. and not just sound as a part of poetry, especially cerebral poetry, right? It's not spoken word necessarily. Um, It's the kind of poetry that requires a dictionary for any person, no matter how educated (laughs) they are. And so, yeah, I mean, to think of that as sound as well. I really believe in that. I believe that all language is sound, even if it's not spoken. Yeah, I feel like all or most of my poems are very sound-based. Um, that's that's a very important element of them. And my best poems are ones that I hear and then try to put into words. But sometimes figuring out the word isn't so easy. Um, which is why I I often write with a dictionary by my side because I look for especially it's it's easy if I know like the first letter or the first kind of sound like if it's a k sound I can look in the c's and the k's and whatever but if I only know the last couple of syllables that's much trickier to figure out what word is coming um so it's kind of both a scavenger hunt and also there's definitely a, a bit of mysticism involved I think mm. <laughs> I will say reading Threshold increased my IQ level by, like, at least 25 (laughs) points. Um, I was thinking about you. um, So the election happened. uh, We're all traumatized. It's not a fun feeling. Um, One of my soothing things is to rewatch, like, television shows that I enjoyed in the background while I did homework as a child. So tons of Seinfeld, tons of, um, now The Simpsons is on Disney Plus. And there's an episode where Homer falls asleep listening to like a vocabulary booster that's supposed to work subliminally. And it's, he gets the wrong tape. It's like, he's supposed to get a weight loss tape, but they send him the wrong one. Uh, so he wakes up and is like for a week, 
using just these huge, gorgeous words, and no one understands him, and he's not thinking twice about it, and I'm like, oh my god, this must be just Julie's brain. (laughs) Beautiful, ancient language, just running a mile. Oh, I love that. Um, yeah, I'm a big Simpsons fan, so I know the episode you're talking about. <laughs> not not like for the last 10 years or so when the writers left, but the older ones are definitely, uh, definitely great. See, so my problem is I might know a lot of words, but often I don't know how to pronounce them. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, I'll encounter these words, you know, on the page somewhere. And you know, not really hear them used in real life. So then I'll go around just saying how I think it sounds in my head and then encounter someone smarter than me. And I'm like, oops. <laughs> oh, I have so been there. You're describing like the first couple weeks of my MFA experience, me <laughs> trying to say words I had no business saying yet. And I've done this too, where you fall in love with a new word and use it in a poem and you don't even know how to say it. And that's that's like you're really on the cutting edge of the unknown. <laughs> I think that's that's perfect. Well, the other day I had a little walk with AJ and I was like, this is the most wonderful time for foliage. And he was like, I don't know what you're saying. You'd be kicked out of New England. Foliage. It's so cute. So it sounds fancier than foliage, mm-hmm. which is how I say it. Yeah. And then heard someone say foyer instead of foyer but apparently that's oh correct that's me i that's what i say i'm not high class you can say it that way but it definitely makes you a certain kind of person let me take a <laughs> poll real quick are are you guys um apricot people or apricot people i'm an apricot person you too and are yes absolutely well, thank you. I'm going to make my husband listen to this episode because he teases me about that constantly. But I will say, Julie, if you told me how to pronounce something, even if it's my name, I'd be like, you're right, Julie. <laughs> She's got to be right. I'm glad I exude that kind of authority. Your poems are so intelligent. I love this idea, Julie, that I feel like we've maybe been circling around where you were talking about the transcription of sound in poetry as like a transcription of your thoughts and also sounds that come from outside your body. And I feel like you're not just talking about the sounds of the world, but perhaps like otherworldly sounds as well. And also this idea of, you know, things about the next word that's coming and not that you're having trouble deciding which word to choose, but that there's a specific word that's already there and you're trying to find it. Yes. Um, and so you kind of have to do a bit of a divination via the use of a dictionary to find it. And so I guess that's all just making me curious to know more about your writing process and even your philosophy on writing. I know you're not the kind of poet who's sitting around just waiting for inspiration, but I also know that you're not the kind of poet who is solely focused on craft. So like in your in your writing philosophy and your writing life, where do you perceive your poems are coming from? And and like how do you get to them? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> so yes, everything you're saying is kind of how I perceive the situation. 
about the sounds coming from outside. Yes, it it definitely feels a little otherworldly um, without getting like too woo-woo or anything. You know, (laughs) I definitely feel like, as I said before, my better poems, or at least the poems that I like better, I... I don't want to say I receive them because that sounds a little crazy, but I feel like something is channeling through me and writing. Mm -hmm. And then part of the time when I'm quote unquote, like what others might call having writer's block, I'll still write, but the writing is coming from like down deeper inside of me versus from above. And it takes a lot more physical energy to get it out to get out the poems yeah and they don't feel right they feel like I'm trying to write them (laughs) so I guess that would be the difference between inspiration and craft Mm, that's so beautiful well there's like a poetic tradition along that vein and you know calling them otherworldly or the source otherworldly is very much like Jack Spicer who gave his lectures on poetry the word he used was martians (laughs) really that's awesome yeah he gave a series of lectures and i'm very into this material by the way you can look them up there's transcripts online i also have the book but um oh i'd love to see that yeah his poetry is wild and it's great and so i think you have to listen to somebody whose poetry is is so interesting and wonderful when they say that they're channeling and that they're making contact with the martians I'm here for it. (laughs) So I feel like you're not alone. I mean, you know, that's one of many. I would say a contemporary person who might have similar, a similar like poetic ideology might be like the poet Hua Wen. I've read an essay of hers talking about Jack Spicer and his Martians. Oh, interesting. That's someone to check out if you haven't. I will. Yeah. And I want to check out those Jack Spicer lectures too. This is more of like a personal curiosity. But I was wondering, um, would you say that using different tools when you're writing welcomes different, like, divine interventions? Um, Whereas, like, I love typing on a typewriter and just, like, imagining the energies that have touched that tool for the past 60 years. Whereas, like, a brand new spanking .5 fancy pen is, like, all me, all future, And then I don't know what the hell energy is coming from a laptop, but I don't love it as much. (laughs) It's not good. Um, Yeah, so I definitely think the tools do make a difference. You know, I've never actually used the typewriter. Julie. I know. It's really shocking. And I feel like I need to get one. I'd be really curious to see what happens. You would love it. We might need to perform an exorcism, depending on how intense of a typewriter you get uh yeah seeing how you're so open (laughs) this is true um that was a great question Anar, and i kind of want to circle back to it because i wonder julie do you use any tools other than writing implements so you're talking about tokens or amulets Mm -hmm. interesting other than writing tools do you use any other kinds of tools <laughs> for for your writing process? Um, well, you know, I always have my little rock collection nearby. That generates a very good creative energy. But otherwise, I mean, no, not really, um, unless you count the dictionary as 
as a magical object. We do. <laughs> my tome of spells. <laughs> we do count it. Um, so you're saying you don't really need anything extra to like make this magical process take place. It is all just Julie Howd's brain on pure air. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So I guess sitting outside in a natural environment is often conducive. Um, especially if there are some really nifty clouds hanging around <laughs> or like a really beautiful tree. Those things are very, very conducive to the writing process. The natural world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Julie, I want to, I think you are hilarious. Um, I think your poems are very funny. Um do you want to talk about how humor plays a role in your mind and your writing and your life? I know you've got great taste. You said you love the early seasons of The Simpsons. Like every <laughs> great comedian must. <laughs> yeah. Um, first of all, thank you for saying that. I used to really think my poems were funny until one friend of mine read literally all of my poems and he was just like you're not funny these are all about death and dying uh he has no sense of humor <laughs> but I mean no he wasn't wrong because all my poems are about death and dying but I I hope that they're also a bit funny yeah that process can be very funny so yeah so humor I mean in my daily life I'm very into comedy I love comedy shows I don't like anything you know scary and it has to be like a really good drama for me to be interested in and like even dramas that are good usually have a decent amount of humor involved I think I don't know if it's like the Irish in me because you know we have very black humor and this like you know laughing at death or like laughing at serious things mm -hmm. to like kind of lighten the mood or not even lighten the mood so much as just really like you need humor in order to cope. I know I've used that word a few times today, but you know, life is really heavy. And if you don't have humor, it can be really dark. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, my family is like full of dry humorists. That definitely runs in our family. And um, yeah, I, I feel like maybe a lot of that too is born out of like a defense mechanism you know again just like dealing with life's hardships um but also just like dealing with my own insecurities and bullies in school and stuff just like being able to be the one who like laughs first <laughs> yeah yeah and just like having that power of laughter be like no I'm owning this like I'm owning who I am and yes things are dark and dismal but there's a lot of joy and, and beauty to life and you have to just see the light side too. I would say something that appeals to me about dark humor or a dark sense of humor black comedy is that um, something like death as as artists as writers you always look for kind of the things you can't escape so we can't escape having been born um and the same way that you can't escape the fact that all of us beautiful beings will move on. Our bodies will expire. And I think bringing humor to that makes it okay somehow. Yeah. Um, and like you said, coping. Like, what is 2020 about if it is not to learn to deal and to cope? <laughs> but there's this one line that I think about constantly that... Uh, Claire and I just 
say to each other all the time from your poem memorabilia and I will just go ahead and go on a limb and I think I've told you this before but when I read this poem um I was like this is the book we're gonna publish this year oh wow and so I absolutely loved it but memorabilia starts with were there really no good books this year (laughs) and it hits so hard in the year 2020, now as we near the end, I'm absolutely delighted by it. <laughs> yes, it's so cynical and so hilariously paired with this image of a surrealist straw through which existence enters one end and emerges from the other unchanged. There's just so so many subtly funny lines in the poem, and I feel like that line is the perfect one to open the poem with this, like you said, kind of dry, cynical sense of humor, which it, it is so funny to me because when this book came out, that line was about this book as well. <laughs> so it's not just critical of the world and other writers, it's critical of the self. And I, I love that. Right. And there's always, you know, as I said, there's always that self-deprecating humor in there. <laughs> And, you know, I, I feel like another mechanism or function of humor is the function of the fool in medieval castles is to tell the truth with, mm. you know, a bit of humor involved. So it lands a little lighter. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I try to kind of always be confronting the reality of the world and the state of things and we take it with a little humor it might be a little easier to digest absolutely um i would love for you to read us a poem julie so i think i'll start with an occasion for ballyhoo i just feel like this poem fits very well with this year an occasion for ballyhoo funny in the news Funny in the way we look deeply into each other's mouths and try not to laugh. A crumb from yesterday in my pocket still. Graffitoed pegasi on blue sky brick walls rising off to file their taxes on time. If only we were so attentive. The game goes on and on, though the mascot lies maimed midfield. We are the giant masked creatures. The phony hole in the backdrop, the rabbit poisoned in its home, dying absent of light. Ride the celestial bit torrent, walk away widely like a crab, a cowboy, the residual moon sick in its dust. Freedom was famous for a spell. Calla lilies were flowers once, but now are only words. There are at least two states of being, one of which we pretend to know very well. The magic I created from my essential elements left me shriveled like a watercress root. Leave my aura alone, it's not time for that now. We can spruce it up later, a bit of lemon juice, some abstract lighting, a floating frame. Thank you, Julie. That is such a great poem to choose because we start off with the news um, and the best line about the news 
funny in the news simply because it's so absurd, especially this year, especially this year. Yeah, unfortunately, this was even written long before all of this most recent stuff, but um, I kind of feel like it's all all been like that, but just more to a heightened degree as of late. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's an apocalyptic feel in this poem for sure. And one of my favorite lines is that line about the calla lilies. Calla lilies were flowers once, but now are only words. Um, it reminds me of a W.S. Merwin poem about dragonflies. I forget which book it's from, but imagining the future in which a grandchild or a person living in the future only knows that natural creature by name and by pictures in a book because they don't exist anymore. And I think in, in that poem and in this one, choosing something that still exists now <laughs> as an example of that is so hard hitting because it's hard for us to even imagine a world in which an entire plant species that we maybe grew up around um, isn't there. And it's not over-exaggerating anything. It's literally what's happening. And it may not be happening with calla lilies, but it's happening with other familiar things. Yeah. Extinction is one of the big, I guess we could say, themes that runs through this, probably through all my poems, but especially through these. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, we're in the midst of a sixth mass extinction. I forget how many species it is that die each day and that are lost forever each day, but it's it's hundreds. Um, and we just don't even realize how much we're losing. And I'm sure, you know, these these more common things, it'll take a lot longer for them to disappear completely. But um, yeah, there's just still so much that won't ever be again. I mean, that's just the most bizarre and tragic thought. Uh, it's heartbreaking. Julie, would you say that this poem comes from inside or from above you? I think this one came from above. I'm, I'm curious if some of these like more prophetic poems were like these divinations or these uh, like the future was told to mm -hmm. you without you realizing and then you read these poems and what is now the future and you're like huh someone told me this mm -hmm. would happen and it was me <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens when you screw around with simultaneity because that's what you do and you were, you were expressing that I think at the beginning of this podcast that you are kind of trying to pull it all in at once. And each line isn't just a mental experience or a physical or a spiritual experience. It's trying to hit on all of the faculties at once. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is my philosophy as a poet as well. And I know that I can't do that in one line, but it's always my goal to keep trying. And I feel like mm -hmm. that's what I see is this continual attempt to bring it all into one line. And that's how the poem gets cobbled together and when you're talking about simultaneity time does not exist on a linear plane it's spiralic it's circular it's some other shape in which case yeah you're you're channeling poetry from all points in time not just yours and I feel like there's a place for that type of poetry I'm all about poetry that lives in the moment and I feel like it's necessary as well um especially in the realm of like social justice um and I feel like 
your poems are the type that are making references to the now and pulling that in, but they're also sort of aware of this other shape of time, which is cool. Yeah, that's that's the type of poem that I write um, that definitely exists in this time that isn't linear. Um, but I guess if there were something in the now that most appears in my poem, it is this kind of call for the environment because, yeah. you know, there are so many wonderful poets hitting all those social justice notes that can do it much better than I ever could. But I feel like my voice is the voice for the environment because it's another really urgent thing that we all need to be talking about. And there won't be a world left to fight for social justice without an environment. So these fights need to be simultaneous. Yes. And, you know, I hope that with this election behind us, we can get back on track taking care of our environment and, and all the people and creatures who live in it. But I think that's what drives the urgency in my poems. Yeah, I feel that. And I feel like that works really well, like you were saying, with your voice as a poet, which is in multiple registers all at once. And that's the force of nature. You've got the force of nature behind the voice in your poems where it's it's really <laughs> big and really intense sometimes. And it's also microscopic and down to the most minutia of details. Yeah, and I never was someone to define my poetry as like being in any one genre or category. But now that the urgency is that much stronger these days, I would feel comfortable with saying my poetry is at least tangentially eco-poetry um, and more specifically eco-surrealist poetry. Um, Hell yes. <laughs> um, so I'm just kind of leaning into that with my, my newer manuscript that I was talking about previously about how it's more embedded in the natural world. I'm just kind of leaning into that eco-surrealism. <laughs> it is so cool. Um, something that Claire and I had talked about while we were, um, helping you edit your manuscript was, you know, we were, we were a little concerned. We're like, this is, this is a lot. Um, this is really thrilling. It's chaotic. It is on so many registers at the same time. Um, and one thing that I was really comforted in, and I'm sure that Claire as our senior editor was really comforted in, and I'm sure that the reader takes comfort in is your structure. You yeah. have a lot of formal structure in your poetry. Um, do you want to talk about how structure in writing kind of lends a hand in making your work more accessible to those outside of your own mind? Yes. So I guess my most used structural tool would be repetition because repetition breeds familiarity and it breeds sense so the more you encounter something the more you believe it and the more you at least seem to understand it so some people who read my poetry call it a tick um but <laughs> i guess i'm calling it structure so yeah repetition and you know, using sound as sense is is one of the most important organizing principles of my poetry. You have a lot of um, like capitalization at the beginning of lines. Um, yes, coronated verse. Oh, I love it. 
so much. I know not many people like it because of, you know, the the bad taste of patriarchy mm-hmm. and those like old traditional stuffy stuffed shirts, as they say. Stuffed with what? Stuffed <laughs> shirts. I don't need to know what it means. I fully accept it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I feel like for me, yes, that gives it structure, but it also to me is very aesthetically pleasing to look at. And part of the way that I write is very much dependent on what the poem looks like on the page. So, you know, I'll go through messing with line breaks all day and all night until it looks like the way I want it to look. I definitely feel like having those capitalized letters at the beginning of each line helps like a bookend. It just like helps keep everything together. I think it helps from a reader's perspective to orient us and keep us kind of moored as we sort of swim through the sometimes chaos of of your language, which is a delightful experience. But if you used um, more untethered modern lack of form, it, it would be harder to engage with. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, I, I try to be pretty good about punctuation, too, mm-hmm. unless it's being used in a very specific and intentional way that defies grammatical syntax. Um, But most of the time, I I follow pretty grammatical punctuation. Mm -hmm. And I think that helps keep everything under control and make it look organized and get all our periods and colons and commas. I actually wrote this poem recently that used only semicolons. (laughs) I love that. For punctuation. I think it's a very underused piece of punctuation and people don't like it for some reason but I think it's great it's like I'm gonna say something and then I'm gonna keep saying something completely unrelated but I'm gonna just throw a semicolon in there and it's all gonna act as a single sentence (laughs) oh I love I love a good semicolon um will you read us another poem yes I guess I read this one a lot but it's pretty um It's pretty on brand for 2020. (laughs) Monogamy. The earth is taking requests. Do that thing where you glow so green you threaten our collective sanity. When the religious and non-religious aardvarks gather in the food court, it's a wonder there's anything left for the apocalypse bunker they've dutifully prepared. Prescient borrowers excavate the land in search of Dixie cups and copper wire for future telecom. God's gift to the world, a confetti of clapping when the sun dies down. It's a wonder I haven't reneged on you staying here, oh ghosts. Just burn my face onto some toast and your unfinished business will be forgiven. You may complete your existence as an audiogram and retire a puma in the Americas, immortal as Jove's gonads. The aardvarks on high bang their gavels. Whoever gave the aardvarks gavels? September and the sleeping catamounts listen in, inhale the litigious smell. What rare parfum, what willingness to be completely bare in front of a thousand-eyed jury. It wasn't my mistake, so I refuse to leave. Please evacuate on tiny, sterile rocket ships and surrender your plushy physiques to the abyss. 
The earth has ingested too many supplements and must rest indefinite. Yes. Thank you, Julie. I also just want to go ahead and mention that a sign of some iconic line is like when it's reappropriated and applied and said endlessly. And I just go around day to day in my life just shouting what rare parfum for no reason. <laughs> I just like I love make that. cereal. What rare parfum. Um, so it's like an inside joke in my life, in my household. It just really stuck. So that makes me so happy. <laughs> I totally agree. I feel like I have, the more I read these poems, I feel like I have inside jokes with them or they have inside <laughs> jokes with me. And this poem just makes me snicker. It just makes me just sit here, you know, making this little smirk and just snickering. Um, (laughs) Because the aardvarks are these kinds of angels on high controlling (laughs) all of the nonsense that's happening in the earthly realm. And that makes as much sense as any other explanation for the divine that I've ever heard. (laughs) And so I'm snickering because it's funny and it's also kind of poking a little fun (laughs) at mm, the idea that this is all planned out ahead of time. (laughs) And it's poking fun at itself too. It reminds me of Cesar Ira's short stories in his book, The Musical Brain. And it reminds me of my favorite story from that collection which is called god's tea party and man if there's anybody out there who hasn't read that story y'all need to get on it because it is so good Claire, i was about to say the exact same thing um but i was about to refrain because i couldn't remember the story title so i guess i second what you just said <laughs> that makes me so happy does it remind you of that the story God's Tea Party a little bit? It absolutely does. Uh, Julie, you got to read the story. I have to, yeah. I actually think I got this one at AWP for like some ridiculous price, like $10 or something. I haven't read it yet, though. You have it. That's all that I needed to know. When you read it, whenever that happens, <laughs> you just got to let me know what you think. Because I, I feel like it's going to be your jam. And the... Parallels between this poem and that story are kind of crazy. Oh, wow. So, yes, a 2020 poem, if we've ever needed one. Um, I also wanted to mention that there's a line in here. It's a wonder I haven't reneged on you staying here, oh ghosts. I came across a New York Times article that was just like people and their ghosts in their homes and having to cohabitate with them Mm. because of the pandemic and things being locked down. And I was just like, wow, people are just kind of like, yeah, my roommate, the ghost. Oh, that's awesome. Never thought about ghosts being part of the quarantine. (laughs) It makes total sense, though. You're away from your home during certain hours of the day and they get to like be in their space and do their thing and like, you know play board games or whatever they do and then (laughs) you come home and it's like your space again now all of a sudden you're just here all the time yeah that can't be fun for them or 
can be. Who knows? But <laughs> who knows? Yeah, I guess we just have to learn to live with them. Oh, yeah. You know, that just compounds all the other psychic space that we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. I'm really excited about these show notes. Um... Yeah, <laughs> truly. We celebrated this book right before the pandemic. Most of these poems I haven't read since then. And the lines, please evacuate on tiny sterile rocket ships and surrender your plushy physiques to the abyss is very funny and feels like as good of a game plan as we've seen so far in terms of um, dealing with current (laughs) events. And I think the it wasn't my mistake, so I refuse to leave line resonates a little more with me now thinking about like who's going to really be on these rocket ships who gets to just evacuate it's only going to be the rich it's not us mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're going to be the ones that have to hold down the fort and wear our masks and stay at home and try to fix it because some people seem to think that they can just get on their little rocket ships and their plushy physiques will be you know fine <laughs> I know. <laughs> if there's any poem that manifested this year, it is this poem. <laughs> All my apocalyptic poems are written in the near future. Um, you know, they take place in the near future. And yeah. so this was written a few years back and we're quickly entering the near future now. We maybe already are here. So um Yep. We're here. I guess we are here, but yes. <laughs> Part of the way we structured this chapbook, too, um, because we were all like, well, these are apocalyptic poems, but how do we sort them? Mm -hmm. Um, What is the arc? What is the narrative? And the first section, spring, is the beginning of the end, um, which is kind of what I'd say is where we are now and where monogamy... um, is placed yeah and then we go into delirium which is probably the very near future (laughs) not current and then there's just the bleak and extinction one of my favorite inside jokes that i have with this book is that one of the poems is just titled good luck love that I love it's so cheeky it doesn't you know like regardless of what happens in the poem just that there's a poem titled good luck is so hilarious to me and that it's in the second part of this book towards the end here yeah it's in the delirium section right before we hit the third section which is titled extinction and yeah as we round down to the end of the delirium section there's this poem that's just like you got no idea what's coming up Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I I also just noticed that there's a piece of toast in that poem. You like toast, huh? Oh, I love toast. (laughs) (laughs) We already talked about toast today. We have not already talked about toast. I feel like that's uncharted territory. It's totally game. (laughs) Yeah, so toast has played a big role in my quarantine it's cheap, it's hearty, you can spread it with peanut butter and put some bananas on there. And you've got a comfort food snack. This is the quality content right here. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's a it's a magical canvas for your wildest food fantasies. That sounds amazing. If the world has taught us nothing else, it's that there's no end to what you can put on a piece of toast. <laughs> if for some reason toast needed a PR spokesman, I take great joy in knowing that you are here. <laughs> I'll step up. The next time somebody puts you in that corner and asks you what your poetry is about, which is a very unfair thing to do to a poet. No one out there should be doing this. But if they do, just say it's about toast. And then just <laughs> launch in to, you just have a pre-prepared, like, whole philosophy about toast. <laughs> They'll stop asking you that question. <laughs> yeah, and at least I have one poem to back up. You know, this poem is about toast, and I'm sure I have others. I'll just need to dig through my archives and find all my toast poems and have them at the ready. Well, monogamy has that line, just burn my face on a piece of toast. Oh, we did just, we did just read about toast. Yeah, two in a row. <laughs> I know. So it's, it's definitely an important image of threshold. <laughs> well, I'm being silly, but, you know, it it reminds me of Mary Rufel again. Like, there is a domesticity in your poems that's also unexpected because, you know, we're talking about extinction and rocket ships and all kinds of crazy mental gymnastics are taking place. And then we're talking about a piece of toast. <laughs> it's so comforting and so, and and it's so funny. Oh, well, I'm glad I'm glad you think so. Um, every every now and then when I feel my poem drifting off into the stratosphere, you know, I'll throw a piece of toast in there just to bring <laughs> us back and remind us that we're still here on Earth and we're still bodies. <laughs> I love that so much. On the note of domesticity and like it being so unexpected and I mean, just the chaos we can find in some of your poems. Um it reminds me of the poem Typical Week, which mm -hmm. I remember the first time Claire read it just laughing so hard. And I was like, I don't get it. And now I totally get it. And yeah, you give us just weekdays and then a schedule, a regiment, a routine. Um, but it's absolutely nuts. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and because that's how our day to day is, you know, like one day, the beginning of the week on Monday, you're sweeping your arm across the expanse of your kingdom. And there's so much possibility. And then by the time you get to Friday, you're just a shellfish. <laughs> <laughs> Which is also kind of comforting, but it's all so bizarre and so strange and wonderful. And then Sundays we go tennis playing, which sounds just like so <laughs> British to me. I don't know why. I think, well, I think tennis is big in Britain because of Wimbledon, right? Yes, that's probably where the connection is. Yeah. Um, so I think when I wrote this, this was based off an actual week of mine. I, I buy that. <laughs> we used to have this great tennis court at our apartment in Austin. So, you know, we got to feel like we were part of the high class citizenry mm, the social elite something about tennis you just feel it's like oh I'm playing tennis you know I've made it if you're doing <laughs> it you have leisure time mm -hmm. you know and it's like a classic leisure activity that makes you feel like a fancy rich person mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think it's definitely that leisure time. So there's like, there's a lot of leisure in this poem, which I think makes it fun. Yes. Um, But there's also a lot of chores and, Mm -hmm. you know, work. Um, Like I kept all my clothes in a bag. And Wednesday was a wrecking ball. I mean, that basically feels like every Wednesday at work. So there's, you know, there's a trade off, you know, you have your leisure time, but at the sacrifice of what? And, you know, that's where the kind of nine to five job comes in. And you don't really know exactly what you're sacrificing. Um, mm-hmm. Till you've already sacrificed it. And, right. And it's gone. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so. If you were going to pair toast with a topping with this book, what do you think would be the ideal toast experience to pair with Threshold? Oh, boy. The ideal toast experience. Wow. Now, do we want it to be like delicious toast that we can actually eat while we enjoy this? Yes, to being able to actually eat it. (laughs) Delicious is subjective. So this is true. All right. I'm going to give you I'm going to give you a bit of a color palette and I'm going to give you a bit of decadence. So toast of choice, almond butter, applesauce sliced strawberries and a sprinkle of tamari roasted sunflower seeds oh man that sounds so good so i think this matches with the color palette and the decadence of the book yeah i absolutely needed there to be some floral element of like a flavor like applesauce but also i totally agree it needed like a sprinkle of seeds on top mm-hmm. and kind of salty and crunchy that's that's a great that's a great food and i would say a great pairing with this book um we can make it happen you know we're all at home doing weird toast projects <laughs> i actually i had a dream last night um in which someone offered me a loaf of bread in a Parisian bakery and the whole dream was me sitting at a table trying to explain why I am forbidden from eating bread (laughs) and then I just remember the dream ended with me explaining I was just like I just cannot be trusted with bread which is a roundabout way of me saying that in real life now I cannot be trusted with bread because I will eat a whole loaf in one sitting. I love it so much. (laughs) Yeah, there's something just so good about bread. Um, All kinds of bread. Anyone who's like, I can't eat bread. um, Like for health reasons, oh, I'm so sorry. I Mm -hmm. really feel for you because bread is like, oof. Yeah, that's the food. Yeah. Are you baking, Julie? I feel like you would bake oh tragically i am not a good baker (laughs) (laughs) i really you know i bake every now and then like i can make a decent irish soda bread which goes great with some jam while we're talking about toast but i i don't like following rules um when it comes to anything food related yeah so i'm like a pretty decent cook but i don't have the discipline to be a baker (laughs) That's interesting to me because you're so science-minded that I kind of would think that you would almost treat baking like an experiment, um, but 
you seem to have your own objective. She's got too good of an imagination to bake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would really like to be a good baker, but... Uh, Julie, I know you've been dabbling with the tarot this past year. It's something that we talked about in person when we last got to see each other in March. Um, and so as you've kind of developed more of a relationship with tarot, do you feel like tarot will become part of your writing practice or how do you see it as being like connected to your poetry, if at all? Yeah, well, I definitely feel like the more I study it, I feel like the imagery will naturally seep into my poems uh, because the imagery is so evocative and just dripping with metaphor and meaning. Yeah, and once I'm kind of more familiar with the deck as a whole, I feel like it would be interesting to, you know, when I sit down to write to draw a card and have that near me as something to meditate on while writing um, and see kind of how different cards might influence different poems. Mm -hmm. When you're doing the kind of writing that's like the more channeling from the upper exterior, uh, if you had to visualize like the being or the consciousness that you're in contact with via a tarot card, do you have a particular card that kind of could represent that for you or that you feel connected to in that way? Oh, um, yes. Let me just pull out my deck right now, actually. The obvious one that comes to my mind is the High Priestess. So she's definitely there. I feel like mm -hmm. there are some more nature-focused ones that would appear, too. I'm just trying to find... Yes, the High Priestess, definitely. There she is. Oh, okay. I think I know um, the world is definitely, nice. a you know, if there were any kind of being, this world dancer would certainly be at least part of part of the crew who are delivering my <laughs> messages. Well, that's a cool card to pick because it actually has a crew on it. There's like <laughs> these other animal figures in the corners that represent the Zodiac. So yeah, you've got a, you've got a good crew there. Um, that's also the last card in the major arcana and the most like consciously evolved card, I guess. <laughs> so that makes total sense. I think that's a good um, being to to be in communication with. I don't know if that's like, you know, a little haughty of me to say. <laughs> like, my poems are the world. <laughs> I mean, you do, though. You keep it open-ended enough to where there's there's nothing that's not allowed to at least be considered to come into one of your poems, right? Oh, yeah. And, you know, I try to, I try to get it all. And I think you kind of touched on this before, you know, if there's like a lot of kind of planetary stuff coming in, I'll balance that out with the more microscopic entities. Mm -hmm. And, you know, nothing, nothing is excluded. Nothing is not beautiful. You know, dirt can be just as beautiful as a tree or the sky, um, a mushroom. They're all equal um, in my poems, or I try to make everything, you know, equal in terms of the respect it's given. <laughs> Oh, I love that. I remember that you sent us some incredible, excellent poems 
for the first Ice Cream Social anthology. And I feel like your work was such a, like, cornerstone for that first book. Um, And we publish Bildung's Roman, and that had just really resonated with me um, for so long. And it's the first poem in Threshold. And so I've just been a huge fan for so long. And it just feels so great to have your work on my shelf and in my life and inside jokes with it and to like communicate with it on so many different levels. But a good funny question. So what comedians are you really connecting with right now? Um, well, first of all, thank you for saying that. That's really sweet. And I'm, I'm glad that you, you have this relationship with my poems. That makes me really happy. Um, and uh, comedians, what comedians am I connecting with? You know, I, I haven't been watching too much like stand up or anything. Uh, I've just been like watching a lot of comedy shows like the show I'm watching now is one of my all-time favorites, uh, Parks and Recreation. Yes. Just like an ensemble. Oh, yeah. I just love an ensemble cast. Like, that's kind of my favorite kind of comedy because I feel like it really plays up real human relationships when you get to see, like, all these very different people interacting together. Mm-hmm. And especially with comedians, once you find, like, a group of people who are really magical together, you just want to, like, watch these people all the time. It doesn't matter what they're doing. <laughs> Um, I remember really connecting with Taya about Lady Dynamite and so much of your sense of humor reminds me of like Maria Bamford as well. Oh, yes. Taya had mentioned her to me actually a while ago. Um, and I've, I've only seen a little bit of her stuff, but she's very funny. Um, does she have like stand up? Oh, tons of it. She mm-hmm. just really meddles in like dark humor, a lot of mental health, which in a lot of your work, you do a great job of putting a spotlight on mental health and also kind of marrying it with humor um, and keeping it light while, you know, bringing attention to it, which I think is essential. Mm-hmm. Um, but Maria Bamford is just a master at you know, making humor out of, like, her experience with mental health. Um, Yeah. Lady Dynamite is Maria Bamford's comedy show that was on Netflix, and it's funny. (laughs) (laughs) I would definitely be interested to check her out from that description because I do feel like mental health does play a big role in my poetry, and it's curious that you noticed that because I wasn't really sure how much that came through. It is very present. (laughs) Um, Also, tons of Maria Bamford uh, stuff on YouTube. Um, And I think that's kind of how she just really exercised her freedom and just being so over the top with her comedy. Um, Mm -hmm. Another thing that she is known for would be, like, she was the Target commercial lady. Um, really? So she was the, like, it's holidays, I gotta buy absolutely everything, um, super manic consumer trope, and it was hilarious, obviously, but she did the role for commercials, and then kind of had, like, a conscious of it, um, and 
was really ashamed of consumerism and the way that Target treats their employees as well as like any other just like capitalist entity. So then she decided to like step away from that and yeah, but. Oh, funny. Yeah, that's interesting that that's maybe where she started. Yeah. Yeah. Julie, it is an honor to have put out Threshold, um, to have worked with you, um, to have celebrated your book with you right before the beginning of the end. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for joining us and having such a fun conversation with us today. I can't wait to see you again in the near future. Thank you so much, Julie. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun and it's so nice getting to see you and talk to you both and, you know, just all my gratitude for the work you put into Threshold. You know, Claire, your edits were just essential and Anar, your design really just made it pop and you're a wonder team and I'm so grateful uh, that we put this book out together. (laughs) Can't wait to celebrate your next book that comes out, Julie. We'll see. But even sooner than that, we're going to get to see you at our Chapbook Book Club next month. Yes, so December 10th at 7 p.m., we're going to have a virtual Chapbook Club, which is a new book club that we're starting, and we are featuring Julie Howd's Threshold, which you can get at hostpublications.com. We are going to offer a 10% discount for the Chapbook Club. So please hop on and get your copy today and join us. You can actually talk with Julie at the virtual event because she's going to join us for a live Q&A at the end. So if you're listening to this and you want to ask Julie some more questions about toast or other worldly experiences, Please get Threshold and join us on the 10th. Yay. Goodbye, y'all. Yay. Bye. Bye. For links to the works discussed in this episode, check out the show notes. After our discussion, Julie sent us this heartening message to expand on much of what she had to say in our discussion today. From Julie, there is a constant tension in my poems of being both a human animal and being a citizen. I feel like it is our animal selves that get lost or sacrificed when we strive to become part of a society and why we feel the need to schedule in self-care, which almost always involves tending to our creatureliness. Obviously, being part of a society is what makes us great, but we mustn't forget that we are also animals, and we are no better than all the assorted prawns of the earth, big or small.